if you're familiar with uh, John, John's gospel, uh, there's a famous question that is asked by Pilate. So Jesus is betrayed. Uh, Judas has already done his work. He stands before uh, Pilate, the governor, right? And Pilate looks at Jesus and he asks his questions. Three words. He says, what is truth? Right, he looks right at Jesus and says, what is truth? So the question I have for you this morning is very simple. Is Christianity true? Is the Bible true? It may sound strange to ask that. Being in church, uh, being a Christian, well, yeah, Kale, that's kind of why I'm here. I believe that it's true. Uh, but why this matters is because truth is a razor's edge, isn't it? Your eternity hangs literally on a thread. If Christianity is not true, who cares? If it is true, it has eternal importance, doesn't it? So here's a question that maybe you've never asked, or maybe you have been asked or have liked to ask. How do you know that Christianity is true? Um, I think for our context, we're just the average believer, people like me, people like you, uh, our um, almost automatic response as well, because I believe it, right? Or uh, I grew up being taught Christianity is true, or um, my parents were believers, so I became a Christian. Like, why would I become a Christian? They believed it, right? Uh, but suppose I pressed you a little harder. Okay, so what? But why? How do you know it actually happened? Oftentimes, I think we go to something like this. Well, uh, all the disciples died for their faith, right? We said, well, they, they must have believed it because they all just went to the, to the, the, some to the cross. Some were beheaded, right? They, I mean, they went to death for it. Sealed it with their blood, so it must be true. How would you respond then to Muslim martyrs? A martyr is someone who dies for their faith, right? If it's true and death for it seals it, how do you explain 9-11? can fly a plane to a building. They, they believed it was true. That's why they died for it. Is there a difference? Is the risen Christ risen? Or is it as likely possible that maybe the Muslims are right? Maybe, maybe their dying is proving it to be true as well. Suppose we open up a courtroom and put the Bible on trial regarding truth and put the Quran or any other religion on trial. What would make the difference? Well, I'm here to calm your heart in case you're thinking, I never thought about that. I don't know. What, what, what's the answer? Preacher, tell me. What's the answer? I would assert to you that not only does Christianity have a living Savior, so we believe Jesus is actually alive. He actually is alive. He actually was a real person who lived, died, and actually rose from the dead, right? But also we believe that Christianity has unique people that saw him. as the apostles, right? The people who saw him alive. They are, uh, the New Testament is written not by second hand. So this, this, this is not like the game of telephone. Well, I heard so-and-so say it, and then he told me that I just wrote it down. That's not how it happened, right? They actually saw Jesus. They are first-hand witnesses. No other religion has that. We actually saw him. We touched him. We ate with him. We knew him. We loved him. He talked to us. I mean, for crying out loud, we touch his hands, right? The apostles then are first-hand, personal. They really saw him. They really knew him. Uh, and Acts chapter 1, Luke writes the book of Acts, and he, he, Luke was a doctor, and Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs during 40 days. So Jesus spent 40 days just saying, guys, it really is me. Like, he's teaching them, he's verifying it, right? So every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is written either by an apostle, like John, or it's written by a close friend. So we, we think Mark was written through Peter telling Mark, like Mark was the writer, Peter was the spokesman. 
No other religion has firsthand multiple eyewitnesses, right? And Pilate looked right at Jesus and said, what is truth? He just missed it, right? So does truth matter to you? If it does, it radically changes who you are, right? Truth actually changes you. But has it changed you is the question. So my purpose in preaching today simply is to impress upon you that if the truth of the gospel is true according to the Bible and according to the disciples, it should really change who you are. It's not just an abstract idea. Christianity is out here. I just believe it on Sunday and my life is not the same. If it really is true, it's going to radically change who you are. Do you profess to be a Christian? I was one who trusts in the gospel. Well, there is a, is there a real change in your life? Or is Sunday morning just a weekend obligation? You can know a, a real Christ, right? He really rearranges your life. And truth can be known. So I want to give you two verifiable reasons that Jesus Christ really is risen, that he really is alive, uh, according to the Bible. So number one, the gospel according, so the truth of the gospel, the gospel according to the scriptures. We did verses three and four last week, just kind of zooming on up, but now we're kind of back up a little bit and look at it a little bit in a different way. So the gospel according to the scriptures, look at verses three and four. Uh, two things. First, the priority of the gospel. Look at verse three. Paul says, I delivered to you as of, again, first importance, right? This is, this is the chief thing I want to tell you. Paul is saying, this is number one. I'm ranking it this high. It's priority, right? The gospel is of utmost importance to the apostles. The first thing that Jesus said in the book of Mark, his first sermon, was repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus' first words are, it's the gospel, repent and believe it, repent and believe it, right? That's his first sermon. The gospel of Jesus then takes preeminence, right? And Paul says that we must deliver this gospel. We must get it out. If you read the book of Acts, which if you, if you read the, if you want a good book to start in, just go through the book of Acts. These men are, I mean, they are madmen. They, they are invincible, it seems. I just read it this week, maybe. In the book of Acts, though, following the resurrection, all they do is pre, I mean, they tell everybody he's alive. I mean, they, they just can't shut up. They nonstop, right? They just can't. They go into all the world and preach the gospel. And last week, we, I stated that we don't graduate from the gospel. We, we don't learn it and then move on to other things. This is, this is the main thing, right? To leave the gospel is to leave Christianity. What's, we know that because in Romans chapter 1, Paul says the gospel is the gospel um, of God. It's not our creation. We didn't invent it or just make it up. It's the gospel of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's gospel, right? Not only does the Father love the Son... But do you know what the theme song of heaven is? If, if, in heaven, there's singing. Do you know that? So when we sing on Sunday morning, that's why we sing in church, right? The Bible commands it, but also because it's what heaven does, and we want to mirror what God is doing and what happens, right? So that's why we sing. But do you know what happens in heaven, what, what they sing? 27 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb. Did you know that? Do you know Why? What does the lamb symbolize? It symbolizes his death, right? It's all about him dying, his sacrifice, the cross, right? So they're always singing about a slaughtered, bloody lamb. They're always singing that, right? Well, here's the song in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 12 says this. I'll read it for you. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, slaughtered, right? And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you hear the theme song in heaven? Do you, do you, do you see it? Do you hear it? They're singing about the gospel, the cross, right? That's it. That's the theme song. So if heaven is making this a priority, how much more should be a priority in your life? Heaven is gospel-centered. It's all about Christ being slaughtered and risen. The work of Christ was planned before anything happened on earth, right? In eternity, there's no other news that heaven sings about Christ and what he did. Right now, Christ is being treasured and adored and worshiped in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and just forever. So there, in response, we should treasure what God treasures. And who does God treasure? This is your Sunday school answer here. Jesus, right? That's it. So that should be our priority too. So really, this should give us just simply two responses, if this is true, two things to think about. That essentially what makes sin exceedingly sinful is because sin is an attack on that, right? Sin's not just bad because, ooh, uh, that was a murder. That was really serious. Well, that's true. But sin is exceedingly sinful because every sin is against that God, right? That's why a lie is that serious. Not because it's a lie and you make someone feel bad, but you're lying against an infinitely holy God. That's why it's so sinful. And sin is, it's rejecting the gospel. It's, it's shaming Christ, right? It's, an, it's ugly. It's saying, God's not primary. I'm going to do what I want. He can just take a back seat. That's just insanity, right? That's why it's so serious. Ed Welch said this, that if sin is not our primarily problem, then the gospel of Jesus is no longer our, the most important event in all of human history. Conversely, then the second reason is if a church wants to glorify God most, when that God delights in the greatest, what should be our main thing here? Christ, the God, nothing else, right? Everything we do should be just bound to it, just like the hub of a wheel, all the rims, it just, it's Christ. All we do, vacation Bible school, where we sing, teach, pray, every event we do, if it's not about the gospel, forget it, right? It has to be anchored, that, that's it. I believe this is important for your life, life of our church, life of you, that you live tomorrow. So the question is, how might you rearrange your schedule and your calendar to demonstrate, yeah, Christ is better than everything. How can I rearrange my schedule to do that better? How can I plan my life around the gospel better? This week, why don't you think about how you could do that? How could I rearrange it such a way that I show that Christ is better? How do I do that? Some things to think about. So that's the promise of the gospel. Secondly, here's the promise. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now Paul actually gives us what the gospel is, right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what the this is the gospel. Right? This is the good news, right? It's what happened, right? The essential facets of the gospel are here. If these were not here, there is no gospel. Now the gospel has certainly more, right? Jesus ascended. He's a perfect life beforehand, but this is just kind of the bare bones. It's not less than this, but it certainly could be more. But this is the essential gospel, right? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? He's not saying, uh, like, I don't know, Mahomes died. This is, this is his last name. Well, no. This is 
his title, his office. He's Messiah, right? It's not his last name. It's not like saying Michael Jordan, Jesus Christ. It's Christ is his title. It's who he is. He's the Messiah, right? Messiah died. Savior died for our sins. He was not a victim. John 10 says he came to lay his life down to raise it up, right? His death was for our sins on account of our sins, right? He bore the wrath that we deserve, lay in the grave for three days, was raised to life. On the third day, he actually rose. One of my favorite verses in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says that Jesus abolished death. So death didn't just, oh, I mean, he just blew it out of the water, just abolished, just done, right? Paul says here that the death then and burial and resurrection, look at this interesting phrase, are according to the scriptures. Now, what does that mean? So you're telling me that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are in the Old Testament. Back the truck up, Paul. This is, this is New Testament. How do you, what are you thinking? Is he, is he getting mixed up? I don't know. Of course he's not, right? There are plenty of texts that talk about Jesus, that foreshadow that picture is right. If you put your hand in front of a light bulb or even just outside and you see a shadow, you know, if you guys have two brain cells like I do, at least two, uh, you know that that shadow is not your hand. That's a, a shadow of the substance. Right? Your hand is the true thing. Your shadow is a picture, right? Well, the Old Testament is a shadow of Christ. It's like the shadow your light's cast, your hand's casting. The substance, the, the truth of that is all Christ, right? So everything you see in the Old Testament is making its way to Jesus, right? Let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, Genesis 3.15 speaks of one one day who's going to be born of woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That would be Jesus. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 15, when the Lord feeds his people with manna from heaven, well, in John 6.31, Jesus says, I am the bread. That was supposed to be a picture of me. Numbers 21, verse 8, when the people are bitten by these serpents and God says, Moses, put a, put a snake on a staff and make people just look at it and they'll be healed from the disease. Well, in John 3, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says, that's a picture of me. I'm that one. Look to the sun, right? And we could do this over and over and over. I mean, Jesus refers to himself being the greater Jonah, the greater Solomon, being David's son, yet David's Lord. He's the stone that was rejected from Psalm 118. He's Psalm 110. He's the son of man that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. He's the one that Isaiah saw on the throne and John told me, Jesus says over and over and over, it's all me, right? From eternity past, all through human history, God's promise of the gospel has been providentially guided. All the scriptures are all, like I said, shadowy images, pictures of what's going to happen. So maybe this will help you this week. So let's say tomorrow morning you read your Bible as you typically do, or maybe in the afternoon, the evening, whenever you read it, or if not, start tomorrow. Rather than just looking in the Old Testament for, okay, how can I be like David? How can I not be like Adam? I definitely don't be like Adam. <laughs> how, how can I be like Moses? Instead of doing that, rather look for the theme of the gospel. Let me, help, let me give me some ways to do this. So let's say you're reading, I don't know, pick an Old Testament passage in your brain. You got one, okay? Ask yourself some questions. Okay, how does this story or this passage or this narrative prepare the way for the gospel? How does this show, man, if Christ doesn't come, this is all we get. This is as good as it gets. Or how does this show that I, like them, need the Savior? Or how does Jesus' work, how is he the better version of that? Or how is he the opposite of that? 
How does this foreshadow what Jesus is going to come to do, rather than this is just a picture of a person doing something? How does Christ fulfill what they don't do? How is Jesus, I think the best question to ask, I've been told, is how is Jesus the hero of that story? So when you read the Old Testament, ask yourself this question, and you'll read it according to what Jesus says to do. Read it according to how he's supposed to be in this. Those questions help us to see that God has been about Christ, about the gospel for eternity, right? That's how we should read our Bibles. Don't just read it, but ponder over it, right? Don't just let, George Mueller said, don't, don't just let the Bible pass through your mind like water through a pipe. Don't do that. Don't just let it pass. Don't just read it and say, well, knocked it out. Time to go. Slow down. Think, man, how is that a picture of Christ? I don't know. There's a lot of ways to do that. So those questions are, it should be helpful for you. So that's, 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 that's the priority and the promise of the gospel and the scriptures. Next, Paul gives us the second verifiable truth. Number two, the gospel according to the disciples. And he has two things for us as well. In verses five through seven here. So first, so we're going to go through five, six, and seven. And then again, we'll go through five, six, and seven. So just follow along with me. So first, there were real encounters with Jesus. As I said, Jesus really did rise from the dead, Right? He actually did. He actually triumphed over the grave. Now, uh, liberal theology in the Christian world, they say they're Christians, but liberal theology is just, it's not. It's not political stance. It's just, ah, we just take things, kind of half, half truth. Uh, they would say, well, it wasn't a real resurrection. It was like a spiritual. Like they just, they had the living spirit of Jesus. They just were so excited about him. Well, we would just say, that's just baloney. He clearly rose. He's not just a, a figure of their imagination. He actually rose, right? Look at verses 5 and 7. Paul makes it very clear. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So Paul's saying this. He appeared. He appeared. He actually was seen, right? Cephas, right? So maybe yours says Cephas. That's Peter, right? Uh, Peter's name in Greek, it, it means stone. Little stone, little rock, kind of like pebble. And Cephas means stone, so Jesus gives him a new name. And Paul tells us in, that he met Peter. Peter actually met the Lord, right? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says that we are all eyewitnesses to Jesus. Now, when did Peter meet the risen Christ? Well, we actually don't really know. It's not really, it's not really a, like, like a one-on-one. There's not really any account of how, You know, we don't really know when. Uh, some people think, if, if you're familiar with the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, when the disciples are on the road and they go, who is that? Um, if you read Luke 24, 34, it seems to be that one of those actually might have been Peter. kind of seems that way if, if you read the, the narrative there. Maybe he met him during the 40 days. Acts chapter 1, right, says that Jesus appeared to him during uh, 40 days. Maybe he met them then or, you know, maybe at a private encounter. We, we don't know, but either way, he met the Lord, right, personally, one-on-one, it seems like. Next, he says, to the 12, right, the 12 disciples. Now, we know that Judas is not there, so really it's the 11, but that's just the name for the group, right? This is their band name. It's the 12, right? All of them together met the Lord, and we see this in the, uh, in the room with the locked doors. You see this maybe on the, uh, on the sea in John 20, where Jesus meets with most of the disciples. You see this on the, um, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, Matthew 20, he meets with all the disciples, right? So you see this over and over. He meets with all of them together. And then look at verse 6. This is, this is stunning. 
then to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500 witnesses. Now, that is a testimony, isn't it? Not just a couple people, not just, I mean, one or two is pretty good. Four or five is pretty good. Twelve, okay, that's quite a bit. 512 at least. Whoa, now we're talking. But more than that, whoa, how many? This is tremendous, right? This is, this is no group hallucination. Oh, we all just were really out of it that day. There's no way. That's, they actually saw him, right? Every Easter, there's a magazine. Go to Walmart. Every Easter time, there's a magazine on the rack that says, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Right? Are you sure? Paul's saying, yeah, we're pretty darn, we met, we know him, we met him. Are you serious? Look at it. 500 at one time. Now, I used to work at a courthouse. Um, I've seen witnesses pulled in that sit in the stand that, yeah, I saw him blow the light, or yeah, I saw him say this, or whatever. Uh, one or two is pretty good, but if you're to crowd the room with 500, don't you think, yep, it happened. Certainly did. We got a whole town of Ulrich here to gather. It, they're all here. They all saw him, right? This is huge. And Paul said this, most of whom are still alive. So what's Paul saying? You don't believe me? <laughs> go ask. You got 500 mouths. Go ask them. They'll tell you the same thing, right? To, to just consider this. If, if the resurrection never happened, do you think Paul would, do you think this group would keep it quiet? If it, was a, if it was a lie, don't you think that at least one person out of 500 would say, you know, we got a bunch of money, it just didn't happen. Someone would squeal. I mean, you, 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 you guys are people. You would squeal. We all would. But 500? Man, it's got to be true, right? It's got to be true. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So again, we know from Scripture that there are two there are two disciples named James. We have James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12. He was uh, the first martyr, the first one killed after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, I mean, Stephen was killed, but Acts 12 was the first like, apostle that right, was killed, right? Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus, in Matthew chapter 10. So we have two James who were original disciples. They're the first, some of the first 12 that Jesus called to himself. But this is a different James. This is a third James. He's the brother of Jesus. The half-brother, right? And like the other disciples, even our Lord's brother needed proof, which makes sense. You, you guys have siblings? Any of your siblings ever say, yep, I'm Yahweh. I'm God. I can pretty much do anything you can imagine. I mean, I, I know you're good at baseball, but you're not that good, right? If my, if my brother claimed to be God, I'd probably think, uh, okay, whatever, right? I mean, no, James was, a, he, James was a skeptic. He didn't even believe his own brother, right? Even he needed to meet Christ. Lastly, to you, all the apostles. Again, this is another group appearance. Uh, John 21, the Sea of Galilee, maybe. Again, maybe after the road to Emmaus. Um, Acts chapter 1 talks about... Um, the, so this is the apostles. So Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. Maybe this is including Matthias in there. We don't know, again, but another large group gathering, Right? Point is, all these brothers who met Christ were just that. They were brothers. They were real believers. They really met him. They were disciples. They actually knew him, right? So likewise, a church then, the first church in the book of Acts, was formed by people who actually met Christ. They actually knew him. They loved him. They saw him. 
Therefore, churches today should be made up of only those, and only those specifically, who have met with the risen Christ and know what the gospel is. Local churches to be a gathered body of believers who have had real encounters with Jesus, right? They really, I really met him. I know him. I might not see him in my closet, but I know him. By faith, I know who he is, right? And I could actually explain the gospel. I know what it is. That's a, that's a believer, right? You've met him and you're ruined for everything else. I don't want anything else. I want Christ, right? That, that, that's a Christian. Christ is their treasure. If you were to ask any of the disciples, okay, where are these 500 guys at? Where, where am I going to find them? I think, I think they would say, well, they're at their church in Corinth. Or that their church, in, I mean, they're at that body in Thessalonica. I don't know, but you'd find them at a church, right? The natural gathering place of believers. So then church membership is to be made of people who are actually these types of people. People who profess faith, who know the gospel, who've actually met Christ, changed by him, right? And we assemble. We assemble together, right? So they had real encounters with Jesus. Secondly, there was a real transformation from Jesus. Again, look at verses 5 through 7. We'll kind of go a little bit different through it, but I want you to see what happened here. So these appearances are giving us a picture of what Jesus does to somebody. He, he radically changes who they are. They, they are made new, right? We, just, we read that text. If anyone's in Christ, he's a what creation? New, right? There's the old has gone, the new has come. So conversion, becoming a Christian, hear me now, is not just not doing bad things. It's not going from irreligious to religious or bad habits to good habits or being free from being a jerk to being really friendly. That's not conversion, right? That's not what we're aiming for. Rather, it's a radical change. It's a core change. You're a new person. That's why the Bible uses such strong language, right? You're, you're a new creature. It says you were once dead, now you're alive. It says you've been born again. You're brand new, right? It's, it's radical language here. It's a noticeable change, a lasting change. You have a, a new trajectory in life. You're no longer the same. You're different. Everything about you is different. So let's just look at these witnesses. Number one, Cephas, or Peter, right? When Peter first meets Jesus in Luke chapter 5, he says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Don't even come near me. I'm so bad. Just stay away, right? We, we know that Peter's faith was faltering when he walked on water, right? Matthew 14, Lord, I'll come to you. I'm sinking, Lord. Right? Just, his faith just was gone just like that. I remember when Jesus was praying in Matthew 27, what did the disciples do while Jesus was in? This is the night before his death. The disciples are with him. And what, what does Peter and the disciples do? They take a nap. I mean, they're just, oh, we're, geez, we're really tired. This is my last moment with you. And they just fall asleep. I mean, they just look, they look pathetic, right? When Jesus betrayed, do you know who scares Peter, who makes him get terrified? Remember they asked, when Peter denies the Lord, right? Do you know who, who the first person to do it is? A little girl. Are you all scared of little girls? Hey, do you know Peter? Do you know Jesus? No. I mean, Peter, it's a little kid, man. He just, he's just petrified, right? But after the resurrection, rather than turning away from Christ, Peter turned for Christ, didn't he? Jesus Christ himself restored Peter, didn't he? He asked, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? He restored him, right? He brought him back. Acts chapter 2, Peter receives this spirit just like all the apostles do. 
Peter preached boldly. If you just read the book of Acts, these men, I mean, these are invincible men. I mean, they, they just, they preach, they go out. Doesn't matter who's, they don't care who's opposing them. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, right? This guy who is scared of a little girl. Now, him and John go to, they embrace beatings. I mean, they embrace it. You're going to get beat. That's why we're going. We, we have to go, right? In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, Peter and John leave, quote, and they rejoiced after getting beat. They rejoiced. They were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Just invincible. I mean, these men are insane. Lion-like boldness, right? Peter has a humility, a gentleness in his letters, but he has a face like granite, doesn't he? He's not scared. He's a heart tender like a child, but a face like granite. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. A little coward turned to quite the man, didn't he? Secondly, just the 12, like Peter, all the disciples were cowards, right? They were always slow to understand. They were foolish. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. I mean, they, they don't ever believe. They doubt Jesus. They're just always like, what? what are you talking about? We don't believe you. When Jesus was crucified, they all hid. They ran. They, they didn't stay. They abandoned him. And yet again, the book of Acts shows these men were just scared of literally nothing. You'll get killed. We know. They're going to hate you. We know. But we have to go, right? They turned the city upside down by their lives and their testimony. And notice that the book of Acts is called the book of Acts, not the book of, oh, their sermon. Now, there's some sermons in there, but it's what they did because their life really did show, man, they really met this Christ. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Not the words, right? Though it's in there, but it's talking about, man, look at their life. What a transformation this is, right? And again, James was martyred in Acts chapter 12. We believe that all the apostles, maybe not John who wrote the Gospel of John, we think John may have died of old age, though he was stranded on an island uh, for punishment. But we believe that all of them were martyred, died violent deaths. Just extreme, gruesome, right? Because of what they saw. Again, James is a skeptic, a questioner of Jesus, right? He didn't believe, he didn't believe his half-brother. What a shocker. I wouldn't believe me either. But again, when he met the risen Christ, uh, we, church history refers to him as James the Lesser. He just, I'm nothing, right? I'm, I'm the least of, the, at least of all. He was changed. Christ became his confidence. Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul then calls James, the brother of Jesus, a pillar in the church. So from being a skeptic and a coward to Oh, he's essential. He actually becomes a pastor in the book of Acts to a church. So what's the point of all that? Here's the point, very clearly here. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ, who is truly born again, you will have what Romans 6 says, a newness to life. There's a real change, right? So here's a question you must ask yourself. If you claim to be a Christian, is there a newness of life in you? Or is, is, it, is it mostly just, I mean, I haven't really, I'm doing the same stuff, same desire, same thoughts, nothing. Have your desires changed to be Christ-like? Or are they just changing in interest and maybe degree? Let me give you an example of what conversion is not. Conversion is not, well, I used to commit adultery against my spouse, but now I don't anymore. 
Instead, I just, I just entertain lustful thoughts. I don't do the act. I just entertain the thought. It doesn't bother me. I'm not doing it, right, after all. That's not conversion. That's just trading out one sin for another, isn't it? Well, that, one's, that one's more public. I'll have a secret one, and I'll entertain it. It's a change in degree, right? Conversion is not becoming more moral. That's not conversion, right? I know a lot of people who are moral are unbelievers. Some, are, some give more money to things than I do, as a matter of fact. They're a lot nicer than I am, perhaps, in certain ways. That's not conversion. What was Jesus' main assault on the Pharisees? Do you remember? Wasn't it just that? Think of Matthew 23. This is the longest. If you open your Bible in Matthew 23, it's almost all red. Jesus, I mean, it's just Jesus going after the Pharisees where Jesus lets them have it. And he says things like this to the Pharisees. What he's telling them is your private life does not match your public life. There's, there's just no, actually, who you are in private, that's what you really are. Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus says, you clean just the outside of the cup. The inside, you're still dead. Yeah, the outside, you look beautiful, but the inside, you're just full of filth. Your heart's not right. Matthew 23, verse 27, you're like a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. You're a, you're a tomb, beautiful headstone, but on the inside, you're self-indulgent. You're dead. You're false. Conversion then happens not by doing external things, but by having the inside change so there are external differences, right? Well, this morning I told you, guys, I'm sorry I was late to Sunday school. I got hit by a bus. What would you say? You look fine. You didn't like limp or anything? I don't see any blood. I'm fine, though. Bloody, right? Getting hit by Christ by faith, if he's that radically huge, there's going to be a change. There's no, I'm the same. There's a real change, right? God himself must do this, right? He must reach into our, our hearts, take out our heart of stone of unbelief, give us a new heart that's tender, sensitive for what he, who he is, right? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says that God makes us alive. He gives us a new heart by his mercy, not because we're intelligent, because God is rich in mercy, Right? John 3, 3, this, this means to be born again, right? You're, a, you're new. You're like, like a, a new baby. You're brand new, right? Now, the good news is God's work in conversion doesn't stop there, does it? Those who are born again only grow in their love for Him, their study of Him, their attention, their delight in Him. If those things don't describe you, perhaps you're not born again. Then today would be the day where you need to repent and trust Christ. Forsake your sin and put your faith in Christ. And yet we find as a Christian that I actually grow more in love with Christ, don't we? I don't know if you've ever been on a boat before, uh, but if you see a big boat on the horizon, at least for at least the time I've been on it, the closer you get, it's like the boat gets bigger, right? It's like, I'm getting, oh, it's getting actually a lot bigger, right? It's kind of what the Christian life is like, isn't it? Well, Christ is, yeah, he's out there, but the closer you get to him, he just seems to get bigger, doesn't he? He grows in intensity and importance for you. He looms larger, as I've heard it wrote. He has more weight in my life. He directs my heart more. There's an increase in love for him. The gospel according to the disciples shows us that they had real encounters and there were real transformations. So what does this mean? How can I even like put hands on, hands on this and grip this? And what can I do? I want to give you two ways that I think this can help you practically as a believer. 
that if, if, if the gospel is this high of importance to the Bible and to the apostles, it should be to you. How can you maybe work on that and apply that? Simply, number one, remember the gospel on Monday. What I don't want you to do is to do this. I don't want you to be here. I do. <laughs> so don't cut me off there. Edit it. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to be here. Be encouraged. And then tomorrow, just forget about it. I don't want that. You don't want that, right? Monday morning, we are prone to live detached from Sunday, aren't we? We just forget. Rather than seeing everyone as a supporting actor in your life, reorient your life around Christ. If he's that preeminent, make him that way. Well, how can you do that? This means tomorrow morning, bind yourself to the cross. The Bible says that you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Christ is your life. That's Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. You've died. You no longer are you. So therefore, tomorrow morning, here's what you should not do. You should not wake up and go, how's Facebook going this morning? Cool. 25 likes. Told you. Check your calendar. I'm not saying you can't do those things, but don't make that the priority. Run to the Bible, right? Get alone with the Lord. Pray. Seek the Bible first. Reorient your life around the Bible. Hear from God first. Then make your life schedule around that. It really does change how your, life, your day will go. And as you leave the word, don't just leave it. Chew on it. Like bacon. Just keep chewing on it, right? I guess badly cooked bacon. Chew on it, right? Think about it. Man, sing it as you're driving. Think about when you're driving. Maybe you're cooking breakfast. Think about while you're cooking or while you're taking a shower. While you're going to the grocery store, just think about it. And pray through it. Then you'll increase the text in your heart. And when you see people around, don't see them as, man, they're just all in the way. They're bugging me. This is my day. Get out. No, no, no. See them all as people who are fallen, creating God's image. They are starving for the mercy that you know. Do you know that? I mean, they're just dying for it. Ex rather than demand mercy, extend it. Rather than expect grace, give them grace. Secondly, very simply, be prepared to explain the gospel. I think I usually encourage you to preach the gospel to somebody, but we're going to do a little bit reverse this time. Uh, Paul says that most of these witnesses, these 500, were still alive, meaning, I think it implies that Paul says, go ask them. Well, okay. If they are be asked, do you think they'd be able to articulate it? I kind of hope so. If not, this whole account just lied, right? They should be able to explain what just happened, right? Let me ask you a question. If someone approached you today, afternoon, this evening, and to talk about morality or religion or death or whatever, and you had the chance to make a comment or two to explain the Christian truth, to give a good biblical answer, could you do it? Could you communicate Bible truth? What if someone asked you, man, why do you think we exist? Or what is Christian, what a Christian believer? Is the Holy Spirit an it? Is he a person? Wilson asked you about all these LGBTQ plus things. Could you explain it biblically? What the Bible teaches on it? Could you even explain what the Bible is? Paul says that 500 people are, are going to be taking the stand to articulate it rightly. So friends, let me encourage you. What about your children or grandchildren? If they ask you questions, could you answer it to them? If they ask you questions, could you explain the Bible to them and not just say, uh, we'll just... How was your day? Could you explain it to them? Perhaps you need to study more. 
Let me encourage you, you have tons of resources. For instance, let's say tonight, and then we'll close. Let's say tonight you're watching the Super Bowl. Hopefully it's a positive game. And like most, I would encourage you to do this. If you're like me and you've seen Super Bowl, the most unimportant, unhelpful, wasteful time is the halftime show. Can I just with you? It's flagrant immorality. It's half-naked people. Okay? Let's say you walk away or just turn it off. And somebody asks you, why would you do that? Did you see that? What would you say? Could you give a biblical reason why, that, why you did that? Oh, I just don't like music. Take advantage. Could you explain why in a biblical way? Friends, may we pray the Lord impress his truth upon our hearts that we be changed into it more each day. Let's pray.